Science. Welcome to Probably Science. I am Andy Wood, and I'm joined by Matt Kirshen. Hello. And Jesse Case. Hi. And this is our second week in a row of doing some actual real science on this show. We for got, once. We've got real books, real scientists, and authors. Real, Multiple people. Real who, books that have been written on paper. On yep. paper. Normally, we're just reading placemats and... Yeah, yeah, educational placemats, which, which, as I've told you, I've been getting into collecting. This is Jesse's new obsession. Um, educational Mexican restaurant placemats. Uh, they're very generic, you can, you can, um, but all sorts of different places buy them. It's, it's not even unique to Mexican restaurants. All kinds of restaurants will have informational placemats. Like to have Any foreign restaurant, yeah, right, informational right. placemats. But um, the, the Mexican placemats, they choose to focus on different things, different parts of the history. Sometimes you learn a word. Sometimes it's geography. So um, I'm going to get, yeah, I think, 12, 15 of them, get them framed. <laughs> so Just so your room can become this uh, monument to learning about Mexican culture. Yeah. Uh, but this week, we've been cutting back on the placemat reading because we've... <laughs> yeah, we've been reading real things. Real things about real books. Uh, having our minds blown. You, you, heard, uh, you, you, you heard our interview last week uh, with uh, the author of Newton's Football, uh, the book connecting uh, sports uh, to science. And this week, we're, we're, we're all about planets. Yeah, it's the search for exoplanets and, and more generally the search for life among the stars. We're going to be talking with Lee Billings, whose book, Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars, came out recently. And we're also lucky enough to be joined by an actual expert in this field, a postdoctoral fellow at Caltech in the Department of Planetary Sciences, uh, who we're on the line with right now, Bjorn Benneke is with us. Bjorn, can you still hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, great. Well, yeah, we were very lucky to get you because it turns out your work overlaps pretty directly with what's discussed in this book. Um, and and you recently came out here to Caltech from MIT, where you got your PhD, and you worked directly under one of the people who's featured pretty prominently in this book, Sarah Seeger. And what, what yeah, sort that's of correct. And what what is your uh, what is your sort of area of expertise? What are you studying right now? So what I specifically do is I um, interpret spectra of exoplanets to analyze what the atmospheres are made of, and this is kind of a crucial step in understanding of whether these planets are actually habitable or inhabited or not. And so this, in the future, we basically, right now we're doing this for, for, for bigger planets, for Jupiter-sized planets, where we can see what molecules, what gases are in the atmosphere. But in the future, the idea is basically to do this for terrestrial planets, Earth-like planets, or super-Earth, and, and try to understand what the composition of the atmosphere is, and thereby conclude whether there is potential of, of, of life on those planets or not. Okay. Are we, are we limited to those size planets just because of the technology we're using right now, or is there another reason why we're looking at those larger Jupiter-sized planets? Yeah. So the, the main reason why we're looking at larger planets right now is, is basically technology, because larger planets have a stronger signal, especially when they're hydrogen-dominated. They have a, a puffy atmosphere, and um, and then basically we just see a stronger signal when we do our measurements, when we do our astronomical observations. I always so, find that, that my phone works better on larger planets. <laughs> um, and I think that this is discussed in the book at, at length, the fact that we're not even able to get very many direct observations of, of exoplanets. It's all kind of based on, on their effects on the stars they orbit and things like that. So how, how exactly do you get, are you able to examine something as specific as the atmosphere of, of, of the those planets? Yeah, so... As you said, basically, ideally you would want to have the light from the planet directly and kind of separate from the star. But for most planets, we, we can't do this. And to, to do this for an Earth-sized planet around a sun-like star, 
we're actually at least 10 years away from that. Um, but what you can actually do is when the, when the planet transits in front of the star, and this is one of the techniques that we have used to find planets, um, this is transit technique where the planet crosses in front of the star, and so we see this, this shadow or the shade of the, of the planet in front of the star. Um, when you do this, and you do the same observations at different colors or different wavelengths in the spectrum, um, you can actually you get a spectrum which we then call a transmission spectrum from which we can do the same thing. So even though, even though we don't see the planet directly, we can still infer from this transmission spectrum, so how the light falls through the atmosphere, we can infer what the atmosphere is made of. And we can do this basically without ever having seen the planet directly. But we know the planet is there, and we can, still, we can also say um, what the atmospheric composition is of the planet. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. That is some intense math. Um, I have trouble tipping correctly at restaurants, so I, I can't imagine um, finding the atmospheric composition of a planet based on a shadow. Um, sounds a bit intense to me. Here's, yeah. the, here's the weird thing. I find it really hard doing the, the tip calculation, but I find it actually quite easy working out the atmospheric composition of planets. <laughs> wow, that is interesting. Just, that is in interesting. your spare time, yeah, you do that's that? just is a hobby of mine. Like quite often, I'll I'll be well. As a general rule, you go fifteen percent nitrogen. Fifteen, yeah. So <laughs> normally, to find the composition of the planets, you just double the composition of the tax of the planet. Yeah, that's the shorthand. Yeah, uh, uh, but but you know, you just get a general gut feeling. Just a gut- look up and just go. That's seventeen. <laughs> Sure, sure. Now, um, this, this um, Bjorn, this is probably going to sound like a very layman question, because it is. <laughs> um, but it is something I've always wondered. The, when we search for potentially terrestrial planets, or, or I don't even know if that's the right term, but, but planets that could sustain life, um, I have always wondered why we, our view of extraterrestrial life is so limited to uh, what could survive on an Earth-like planet? Are we just looking for, have we decided that's the only conditions life at all could survive under? Or, or are there different forms of life? I know that's a bit like uh, psychedelic of a thought, <laughs> but, but I have always wondered that. Why, why couldn't there be something adapted to a Jupiter-like atmosphere? So I think it's exactly a good point that you bring up there. Um, I, guess, I guess naturally our look is always a bit Earth-centric in a way that we're we're looking for life that is somewhat similar to the life we know, um, but there's absolutely no reason to assume that life on a different planet would be identical to our life. Um, so they might have a very different chemical composition, or they might use basically different atoms or different molecules in the entire process of, of, of life. Um, but people are thinking about this. It's not that, that we are only having this Earth-centric view and sure. only look for for planets uh, that basically are like like Earth, that's liquid water, or oxygen, and things like this. So people are studying, even in the uh, biology community, they're studying basically what kind of chemical processes could life use, um, other than the ones that be that life uses here, um, to to be alive, basically to generate energy, free energy, to grow and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now when we when we talk about habitable planets. What we're referring to is generally a planet that could host liquid water. Because right. from our perspective right now, this is the only condition, or it's basically a requirement for any life we know that there is liquid water. Um, there are some chemical, there's some arguments to be made, for example, why really hot planets cannot have life. Um, so many of the hot Jupiters that have been found, these are 
Jupiter sized planets that are really close to the star and they are at boiling temperatures of 2,000 degrees and higher. And that they can't, basically, our argument is that they can't host life because the temperature is so high that no complex um, molecule can form. So they were all, all the molecules that are flying around in the atmosphere will be very, very um, simple molecules just because the temperature is so high and all the kinetic energy involved doesn't allow to have. So th- complex molecules that, that we think are, are required for life. So there is no chance of there being any sort of complex life in a McDonald's coffee. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the McDonald's coffee is, is not really that hot, even though people seem to burn it, like burn their skin <laughs> on them. But, it's, but it's, it's not that hot. So basically, the temperature of the McDonald's coffee would still be okay. If it's 20 times higher, then it's probably not okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. I think this is probably a good point uh, to bring in to bring in Lee Billings, the author of, of the book we all just finished reading. Lee? Hello, hello. Lee Billings, you're here with us, uh, author of Five Billion Years of Solitude. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so we just spent a few minutes talking with Bjorn about his work in um, studying exoplanets and, and specifically um, trying to discern the, the atmospheric content of Jupiter-sized exoplanets. Um, and I just found out that he worked at, at MIT. His advisor was one of the people featured prominently in your book, Sarah Seeger. Uh, that's right. Yeah. And actually, I think I think Bjorn and I uh, met at one of uh, maybe one of Sarah Seeger's powwows. She has uh, these meetings, uh, which Bjorn can tell you a lot more about than I can, where she'll kind of bring together all of um, her various students that are working in a group. And they'll all kind of talk about what they're working on and stuff. And I, if I recall correctly, I think actually Bjorn and I uh, sat in on one of those meetings and, and we were participating to, you know, together in that meeting. And he was talking about retrieving um, super Earth atmospheres from transits or something like that. So I, uh, I think we may have met once before, Bjorn. And uh, if not, it's good to meet you for the first time again. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think, I think this is correct, yeah. yeah. Um, you were in Cambridge, right? When That's I was right. There. I, I think I remember that, yeah. Bringing these worlds together. This is a crazy coincidence. I'm glad this this worked out. We thought we were Small creating. World. We thought we were creating some grand introduction, and we were going to be like, "Ha ha! We found a scientist." You're like, "Yeah, met, met him." No, well, no, no. we're we're actually the the real profit scheme for this podcast is to introduce our site, sciencemingle.com, ah. where uh, scientists can meet one another. Um, you know, it's sort of like a. It's kind of like the. Um, what, they have that new farming one for farmers. Oh, yeah, farmersonly.com. Farmersonly.com. Yeah. Dating site just it's for farmers. Dating site for those 10 guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've all been taken over by machines nowadays. It's kind of a weird dating site. <laughs> it's, a weird, it's a weird lot. Yeah, a lot of spam bots. Half the time you're just getting lunch with a combine. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah very tricky. Um, now, Lee, your, your book opens sort of by your, um, you, you paid a visit to Frank Drake. That's right. The the one and only the uh, the the founder of uh, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, and uh, do you want me to just kind of go? Should I just freewheel go into that story? Or uh... well, sure, if you want. I mean, I I still want. Um, I'm a total idiot. Uh, I want I want uh, both of you, Bjorn and Lee, to know that I don't know anything. So um, I I I am a bit confused on the Drake equation. Um. Which, which obviously is is so ironic that he came up with that and named it after his favorite type of dragon, but that's also his name, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was a bit nerdy, you know. But um, I am a bit confused by it, uh, so I would love that to be explained to to me. I'm sure my listener, our listeners, are uh, calling me an idiot and yelling at their dashboards, but I'd l- I'd love to hear that. Sure, of course. Well, um, so th- the the context for the Drake equation is that back in I guess 1960, uh, Drake was a 
a young, uh, uh, fresh-faced astronomer uh, at the um, National Radio um, National Radio Observatory, I believe. Is that what it was called? Or I'm probably actually mix, mixing up the, uh, the acronym here. But uh, anyway, he was working in West Virginia on one of the largest radio telescopes in the world. And uh, he realized after kind of doing some uh, really basic calculations that uh, he could take that big radio telescope and point it at a nearby star. And if there was a planet around that nearby star uh, that had a, a, the same kind of kit on it, the same kind of uh, class of radio telescope, and it was transmitting a message to, to him that he could detect it. He realized that, you know, you could communicate between the stars via radio waves from these big radio dishes. And uh, he undertook a search of that. He got some funding for it from um, his boss at the time, a, a, a Russian-American astronomer named uh, Otto Struve. Uh, and uh, that project was called uh, Project Ozma. And he, he basically uh, pointed this big radio dish at two sun-like stars that are near us, uh, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani. And of course, he didn't really find anything. Uh, he mostly just heard, you know, noise or not, not anything that sounded intelligent. Well, it, uh, but it, it, it is weird that he just put blueprints for radio telescopes in bottles and threw them at the sky, which I thought was a, <laughs> a very West Virginia thing to do. Um, but yeah. So but that was that was kind of the proof of concept. And that was the first uh, modern SETI search, really. And uh, and then after that, uh, word kind of spread that he was doing this. And uh, some astronomers got really upset. Other astronomers thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. And uh, a bunch of uh, big heavy hitters kind of got together in West Virginia at the so-called uh, Green Bank meeting that was in Green Bank, uh, West Virginia. Uh, and they, they started hashing out, you know, what were the chances? What, what are the like, what's the likelihood of uh, SETI being successful, of us actually getting a hit, having a detection, finding someone out there? So these are and, people uh, including like Carl Sagan and... Uh, like, yeah, Carl... Carl Sagan was there. He, and, and, you know, funny enough, he was actually pretty much the, the least distinguished person there at the time. He was, a, I think, a 27-year-old postdoc at the time, and uh, he was already kind of up and coming in the field. But uh, most of the other folks were uh, titans of, of industry. Um, uh, there were some big ex executives from Hewlett Packard there. Uh, there were um, a lot of Nobel laureates. Um, uh, one, one of the guys actually, um, um, I believe his name was uh, Melvin Calvin. Uh, actually won Nobel Prize while he was there. So, uh, you know, the small he, he's a folks, chemist, correct? Yeah, that's right, a chemist. And anyway, I mean, the whole point is that all these folks got together to talk about what were the chances of, of finding life out there, finding intelligence out there. And what Drake did, the Drake equation, was his way of trying to kind of um, lay out the various variables that, that uh, go into a successful search and us finding someone. So, so, so this uh, is like, the equation is basically an estimate of... The, it's a multiple of the different probabilities that factor into whether or not there's life out there. Right. So you could consider, you know, um, how often do stars form? How often do stars form of planetary systems? How many of those planetary systems uh, have a, a habitable planet? How many of those habitable planets go on to become inhabited? Uh, how often does that life on that planet uh, go on to intelligence um, or things like technology and radio telescopes? How long do uh, those technological societies uh, stick around and transmit their presence out to the cosmos. And that and, becomes yeah, the biggie, right? Like, like you go on in the book to talk about this L, the the fa the factor L, the length of the time that eat that a civilization exists, or is, no, the, yeah, that it's sending detectable signals into yes, space. Yes, the, the length of time that the civilization exists at a sufficiently advanced level that it is able to beam out uh, radio signals. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, if you, of course, the deeper you get into each variable in this equation, um, 
the more kind of, you know, you can just go so far down those rabbit holes, for instance, with the question of L, exactly. I mean, as you said, does, does that really refer to the longevity of a, situ- of a civilization? Does that refer really to how long they're transmitting in radio waves? Um, and, and the problem then, of course, is that L doesn't just mean uh, pure longevity uh, and how long something lives. It, it really means um, how long someone is transmitting in a way that you can detect it. Right. So right, it's this is right. something you, you talk about in the book. Is that it, I've al- I've always argued it's not the length that matters. <laughs> <laughs> but you you, t- you talk about in the book how it, modern modern communications are actually we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot a bit uh, when it comes to being detected because old school high powered radio signals are being phased out in favor of more near field communications cables and so on. Oh, that's right. Exactly. And, uh, and so, the, I mean, if we're going to use ourselves as a model and project out, uh, then that, that would suggest to us that um, the, the, the L value, if you're looking at L, the longevity, about, you know, if that's about radio waves and radio transmissions or uh, AM television, I Love Lucy episodes and stuff like that, if you're imagining it's that kind of stuff, then it seems like we're already kind of segueing out of it. Um, because now so much of our transmission is not beaming AM frequencies right. out into in across the across the planet and then into space. We're we're sending them on fiber optic cables under the ground, and so now right. now we have all these potential aliens just listening to our right wing talk radio. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's all that's left. Rush Limbaugh is going to be <laughs> he's is, huge is, the emissary <laughs> of our planet. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's uh, it, it is kind of disturbing when you think all the stuff's going out there. Now, fortunately, the uh, the inverse square law is a real thing, and. Uh, it's it's pretty dang difficult to detect uh, most of those most of those kinds of um, I guess leakages uh, from our little uh, our little newosphere down here. Um, it, you know, to to do something like that, even around a nearby star, uh, it really requires um, just a, such a huge honking big telescope, radio telescope that it, beyond anything that we um, have imagined building or probably are going to be capable of building in the um, foreseeable future. So. You know, chances are no one out there is listening that hard. But, you know, who really knows? Who knows? Because they wouldn't but, need, like, all they, you, all you'd need to detect is a radio f- signal that is sufficiently non-random that it has some something behind it. Well, uh, in theory, except, of course, you know, you have folks like uh, Marvin Minsky who has pointed out that, well, you know, you look at all the, um, all the ways that we encode data into these um these streams of, of photons now, whether that's, you know, in radio or optical or whatever it is. And um, we're getting so good at squeezing so much information into these, uh, these transmissions that uh, it, it kind of looks indistinguishable from noise from the outside. So, uh, right. yeah, so, so it, it's complicated. Somebody looking for us is not, is probably has had a very small window to find us and it was peaking maybe 40 years ago or so. And it's going to be increasingly more difficult as our society goes on. Well, in theory, but no one, no one can predict the future, right? It's, it's quite hard to do that um, in, uh, in terms of what humans are going to do. So I wouldn't necessarily say that, that our, our footprint is totally fading or anything like that. Uh, and there may be ways that we can look that, um, that SETI is really not thinking about, for instance. Uh, and, you know, kind of as a segue into other parts of the book, uh, I opened up the book talking about Frank Drake and talking about SETI because a lot of that stuff is kind of, um, it's kind of being, uh, I guess, it's, it's being put in the back seat even more by a lot of the stuff that's going on with exoplanets. We're finding all these exoplanets around stars. Um, we're thinking about ways we can look at their atmospheres, uh, particularly ones that might be habitable. And uh, if you look at that kind of approach, uh, th- that, that could also deliver signs of life, potentially even signs of intelligence, depending on what you're looking for and how big your telescope is. 
Um, but what's nice is it doesn't really require intentionality. It doesn't require someone beaming something out into space and saying, hey, look at me. Uh, you know, it, it's just, a, it's just a, a fact of life that, you know, we, living things breathe and metabolize. And if you have enough of it on a planet, a planet kind of gets infected. It gets a fever of life. And uh, you can detect the breath of life over interstellar distances. So, so you start to see uh, atmo- you start to see frequencies of radiation coming from it that wouldn't be there if there weren't life on the surface. Well, in theory, yeah. I mean, that, that that's one one way of many that that we could go out and find something. Um, so so that's kind of I think where the really exciting stuff is poised to happen because uh, you know SETI's great. I think that we should support it wholly. I, I think it's it, it should be getting more federal funding, frankly, and more uh, private support as well. Um, but it, it does require most of the time in most uh, conceptions, some degree of intentionality, these kind of, you know, benevolent, all powerful super civilizations out there that are, that are going to devote the whole energy of a star, for instance, just to beaming a message to you. And um, that just seems a little unlikely to me. Right. Yeah. And a lot of your book, you, you don't, you, I mean, it's very dense scientifically, but you also spend a lot of time talking about the people who do this work and the frustrations that, that they are met with when it comes to funding and, and the changing political landscapes having effects on scientific research and things. That's definitely a factor. I mean, it's a, it's definitely a book that's about not just the science, but also the scientists and, and kind of what would, what would make someone devote so much of their, their life, their, their time, their, their moment in the sun to this, this rather um, abstract and, and uh, starry eyed search, you know, that's not the kind of thing that most people do. So I was really interested in kind of getting into these, these um these researchers heads figuring out what made them tick and why they do what they do well given that we have one of them on the line with us uh bjorn what what makes you tick what makes what drives your hunt for planets i mean i think in the end for a lot of us including me in our field this this search for life is kind of the overall goal that we're kind of going for um of course there's a lot of other physical questions about or chemical questions about planets or how planets form and basically also how our own Earth form. These are all questions that, that interest me. I think for a lot of people in our field, this this final goal of finding life out there is probably one of the big drivers of our field. And I think this is also one of the main reasons why why this field of exoplanets gets so much attention and is one of the one of the biggest growing um, fields in in astronomy or in planetary science. Yeah, I thought. And, that, and I think, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I thought. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> yes, so I think this is this is overall the motivation for us, and I think what is what what Lee also brought up already is basically that compared to SETI, that for the first time we can actually look out there. We don't need anybody to send us a signal, but what we can actually do is we basically can probe what is around us and and look for life, life signs of life that maybe they're not not able to sending a signal or maybe a radio signal or some laser signal but what we're actually looking for is is proof in the atmosphere that there must be life so for example if i was at the next star from here let's say i was at the centauri and we would look with a big telescope towards our sun we would find the planets the eight planets around there and we would look at at earth and get a, a spectrum of earth and we would see that there is oxygen in a, in a significant amount in the atmosphere and also there's some methane and and basically all the other gases that are in the atmosphere we would we would find them and if we would see that that there's oxygen and some tiny amount of methane in the atmosphere at the same time and there's also liquid liquid water we would basically we could conclude like definitely conclude that there must be life because the, the fact that that we have oxygen on our planet is a result out of life 
It's not the other way around. It's not like that we need oxygen to live. That is true. But I think what is more important for us is that we actually have oxygen because we have light. So if you basically look from a different star to our solar system, we would see that Earth has so much oxygen. We could basically conclude that there must be life on this planet. So we would would be able to prove that there's life um, without necessarily having somebody there that points a telescope at us, uh, sorry, that points a radio translator at us. And, I mean, yeah, this would be, of course, fantastic if we could get a signal like this. But I think the the first step could be to even just say that there's life. And I think it would be a a huge finding in any way. I think for society it would be extremely significant to see that there is something out there that has not has not its origin on on earth yeah definitely and and lee i, I liked how the book also spent a lot of time looking at the, the history of, of of earth's formation and then drawing analogies to what might happen to other planets and how we could tell if they have similar paths as they come like the introduction of oxygen to our atmosphere was sort of catastrophic to the existing organisms as you were saying right it was that was sort of like the uh the the global warming of its time was when yes. oxygen was yes it was it was the first great pollution crisis that we know about um and all these all these pesky cyanobacteria these blue green algae um started venting well basically they found a new source of energy and uh that was uh oxygenic photosynthesis splitting water to um harvest the uh the hydrogen uh, and, and they use that to fuel their metabolism and, and sequester carbon, building their bodies and stuff because we're carbon-based life forms. And then all the oxygen just vented out. So they basically found a new source of energy, and they were so successful with it that they ended up pumping it all into the atmosphere and the rest of the planet. And that was poisonous to most of the biosphere at the time. So there was actually probably a, a huge, uh, unprecedented even, uh, mass extinction uh, when the Earth became uh, fully oxygenated. Uh, and uh, that's... Uh, yeah, it's something to think about. I mean, this is all kind of feeding into the perspective that I really tried to promote in the book, which is that, you know, the, the Earth is an exoplanet to every star in the sky except for one. Um, when we think about going out there and looking for, uh, for looking for life around other stars, looking for other Earth-like planets, looking for intelligence, uh, you know, we really do. If, if you want to become an expert on Earth-like planets, uh, as, as one astronomer told me, uh, you have to become an expert on the Earth. Because uh, the Earth is the best model we have as t- for an exoplanet. That's all we have to compare and human, to. And our assume, life is the best model we have for life on other planets. Right, right. And it's not the best position to be in scientifically. You don't want to always be extrapolating from a sample size of one, but what the hell else are we going to do? That's, that's where we are, you know? So, so I think there's value to that perspective, though. There's value in, in thinking about um, the notion that whenever you walk outside, in a sense, you are entering an alien biosphere. Whenever you look in the mirror, in a sense, you are looking at an intelligent alien. You well, know, we, have, we have plenty of methane in our house. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think... Uh, yeah, it's a dangerous pretty, level, I would we say. Have a dan- If you've been to our pool, you could see the algae. I mean, this is... It's a, uh, we're, we're very much a, a This science- is a primordial... This is a very primordial yeah. house. Um, yes. Hmm. I think we... Yeah, we could... This house could be of interest to any... Uh, any studies and researchers. So Lee, uh, or I'm sorry, Bjorn, you mentioned Alpha Centauri earlier. And um, in, in the book, Lee, you talked about how some of those same assumptions we make based on planetary formation that we know about proved to not be true based on observations of that system, right? It's, oh, well, let, let, me, let me actually just, I, I, so before Bjorn uh, answers that, I mean, I, I'm not sure if he's read the book. I'll just try to explain a little bit more. Um, all that was really referring to was um, some theoretical calculations about how planets might form around a binary star, um, a binary star system like Alpha Centauri. 
And uh, the, some simulations suggested that um, planets would be very difficult to form in, in that kind of environment um, due to uh, essentially some, uh, some stirring because the, the two stars of Alpha Centauri, Alpha Centauri A and B, are in a slightly elliptical orbit of each other. And uh, that can essentially just stir up a lot of the protoplanetary disks that um, could have been around these stars. And that could cause, um, that could really disrupt uh, some of the stages of planet formation. It could make things bang into each other too fast to be able to stick together, basically. So instead of having um, this kind of oligarchic growth where you get uh, structures that are forming and getting larger and larger through impacts and stuff like that, uh, you just get, you know, sand uh, because it's all whirling around so fast. Now, uh, all I'm going to say, and then Bjorn can talk, is, is just that, uh, you know, th th that was very theoretical and there were a lot of assumptions um, underlying those models. Uh, and of course, now it seems like we may have a planet around uh, Alpha Centauri B, though some people would question whether or not that planet is actually real, really there. So with all that said, take it away. <laughs> Quite a disclaimer. Yeah, maybe yeah, to make a comment. Yeah, in the end, we didn't have any proof beforehand that there can be planets that are orbiting one of the stars in the binary system, in the binary star system, or even planets orbiting um, around both of them at the same time, like in Star Wars, where there are the two suns. Um, but because we basically, until 15 years ago or 20 years ago, we didn't know of any planet outside our solar system. And, and so, of course, we could only use the planets in our solar system as, as kind of our guidelines. And, yeah, there were basically reasons or arguments to be made on also computer models that basically shown that, it, that basically in a, a kilometer range around binary planets, uh, sorry, about binary stars, planets cannot form. But, but in the end, what we have seen is that now we have planets around binary stars. So we have planets that orbit around both stars at the same time. We have planets that orbit one star at a time. And so, and so planets can obviously form. Um, what we have, seen, we have seen is that very different planets from the solar system can form. In general, we basically found these hot Jupiters really hot Blazingly, blazingly hot um, planets that are the size of Jupiter really close in, where we basically assumed beforehand that we could never find a, a big planet like this as close as, as these hot chocolate Jupiters are to the star, because from formation they just can't form there. But it seems like planets can, can migrate, and so there's basically now theories how these planets form further out, migrated in, and so all these things, because we didn't have any observational proof or any observational idea of what is out there, people kind of assume that, that, it, that they couldn't be out there and everything should look like the solar system, but it doesn't. And and now that we have an understanding what is out there, now we can actually update our theories and and basically explain why the plants are out there. It's much in the way it's it's much easier to basically to explain something than than predicting something that, that nobody ever had thought of. I think this is in, in, in any in any science like this. Um, I think what is kind of the, the key message, I think, is basically um, that planets of all kinds of masses, of all kinds of orbits seem to form in our galaxy. It seems like that planet formation is very ubiquitous. Pretty much all the stars, most of the stars, have planets around them. And, and then it seems also that basically from all kinds of size ranges. And, and it seems even that, that smaller planets like Earth are even more common than, than the big planets like Jupiter. Even though we have found more of the, of the big planets, there is basically reason to believe, and it's kind of in the data, 
there's a trend that there basically are more is, small players. Like which Burnham. is a huge difference, so right? That's kind of the, I think the, the main messages we have, we have found from, from, from maybe 15, 20 years of studying exoplanets. That, that, I mean, that's a massive change. In, in like that, I can't think of any scientific field where, where the basic premise has shifted so dramatically in a couple of decades. From... Uh, I, think, I think it's actually pretty common, um, especially in 20th century science, the past uh, two centuries in particular. So uh, one, one analogy I like to make, maybe it's not common, maybe I shouldn't say it's common, but, but it, it's not unprecedented. Um, I, I like to think that, that where we are now in our understanding of uh, the formation of planetary systems, perhaps even the, um, the, the rise of life, the origins of life, these, these big, deep questions that, that people have wondered about since time immemorial, I do feel like we're kind of at this uh, special point in history where uh, you can compare it to, for instance, what happened in the early uh, 20th century with, with the establishment of a uh, quantum theory, you know, and you had, uh, you had all these, uh, all these kind of super, super duper geniuses, these titans of science running around all at the same time and making amazing contributions and having these incredible debates about what it meant and, and the big picture implications. So, you know, you have these meetings where you'd have Mary Curie and, uh, and Albert Einstein and Max Planck and Niels Bohr and, uh, you know, Schrodinger and Dirac and all these wonderful, amazing minds all together in the same room. And I, I kind of feel like the way that happened in the, you know, the early 20th century, that's happening now, right now. For sure. It, it's in, pretty... in astronomy and exoplanets. So it's now, just that this is this is the cutting edge. Is this related to mustaches coming back? <laughs> because obviously, early 20th century, you had some amazing mustaches. Amazing mustaches. Even though they didn't seem that popular, I guess, on, on most physicists. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, Einstein had a nice... What was that called? What was it? He had almost like a, like a Selleck kind of thing going. Yeah. Well, like, I think it almost covered his lips. If you you're good at growing Sam facial Elliot. hair, you probably feel like more of a man. You're not going to go into the sciences as quickly. Um, <laughs> you know, you're less of a nerd in school. I st- I, no, I'm serious. I still can't grow. I can't grow a beard. I love science. I think there's a direct <laughs> I've got an engineering degree. I'm the hairiest person here. Come on. It's, this All right. Is, fair this enough. Is easily disproved. Fair enough. Easily disproved. But I, I have seen an uptake in mustaches recently. Yeah, it's um, unacceptable. I blame Mumford and Sons. Well, but but if it's contributing to these newfound theories, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I think we should bring back the mustache. Um, you, you did talk about how the- maybe this is maybe this is just a, a Movember thing, right? Recently, there's always this people in just, all the universities or whatever. There's well, well, basically November you don't shave. Well, if that's the case, we to see how the trend goes on when, when November is over. And yeah, as a scientist, I don't have access the same access to the scientific journals that you do, but maybe <laughs> you could see how many more theories are proven and tested uh, in the 11th month of the year. Oh, because <laughs> there's a correlation between there, the there mustaches is, that grow in that month and discoveries. There's yeah. obviously some sort of correlation between mustache growth and scientific discovery. You'd, you'd have to control for uh, people like ramping up their science in the run-up to Christmas. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, obviously there's, there's you know, the, the day after Thanksgiving being the most popular day for science. Um, but increasingly the Monday after Thanksgiving for cyber science. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, this is very interesting because as we um, have discussed before oftentimes, and I mean this, and I don't mean to bring up anything that sounds borderline, you know, conspiratorial, but we have discussed uh, things like the singularity or just the, the up-ramp, the, the constant um, logarithmic advance of technology right. that seems to be happening. So it seems if you if you were to look at a curve of astronomical discovery um since, you know, uh I don't know, the 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 Olmecs or something, um 
if you were to if you were to look at a curve and take it through Galileo and take it through through all of these things, it seems like we're starting to. I mean, the ramp just gets steeper. Or does it? I don't know. Sometimes scientific discoveries come in sort of fits and starts. So I don't. What's what are your opinions about whether we are? I mean, the future looks bright. Is what I'm saying. I, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you, actually. Oh, um, oh Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be Debbie Downer. By, by the way, feline AIDS is one of the number one killers of uh, of cats in America. I don't know if you knew that, but wah wah. Okay, no. Old SNL <laughs> reference there. Um, but, okay, uh, sure. Yeah, I, sure. I, I guess I'm kind of uh, of the viewpoint that. That, uh, sure, like in terms of just pure discovery, in terms of just classifying objects and, and having a better sense of what's out there, yeah, yeah, I, I do feel like it is following this kind of exponential growth plot. Um, but, you know, the, the devil's in the details. And uh, as, as Sarah Seeger uh, said to me, and which I included in the book, uh, um, you know, how many more uh, transiting hot Jupiters do we really need? Uh, how many more... Uh, There's no need to make you know, fun of Bjorn. I mean, I, I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I'm getting at is, is just that, uh, you, you know, the, if, if all you care about is just finding planets and it's like stamp collecting and, you know, oh, here's another cool planet. Let me put it in the book. Cool, right? And you just get this big book full of planets. Well, I mean, that, that is important and that's, that's, I'm not saying that's not good. That's actually very useful for... Um, you know, understanding and elucidating exactly how planets form and the diversity of possibilities that can exist and all that's great. And that's connected somewhat to the search for life. But of course, that's not what most people are interested in. Uh, I think most people are interested in finding something else that looks a little like us, a little like them. They're interested in in finding planets that are a little like Earth. And, And not only finding planets that could be like Earth, but finding planets that are like Earth. And that's an important distinction to make. Something that, that's out there that is maybe Earth mass or Earth size and in the habitable zone of a star, um, that could be like Earth. And in some respects, it is. These very bulk physical characteristics we just talked about. But uh, to actually know whether it's like Earth, to actually know whether it has continents and oceans and, and uh, you know, cities or radio telescopes or what have you, uh, takes a, an order of magnitude more investment and effort and uh, I'm not really seeing those investments being made right now. And that's one thing I try to cover in the book and one thing that makes me really sad. Uh, sure. So I, I'm not really sure this whole exponential increase in discovery is, is quite as straightforward as, as a lot of people would think it is. You sound like you're taking the, the, uh, the, the perspective on this that um, I forgot the name of the person who contributed to the time capsule you mentioned in the book. But one of the people who uh, had a more pessimistic view of where, oh, yes, where the yes. planet's going to be in 100 years in, the, in 2063. The 63 time capsule, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so that story is simply, uh, that, that guy, uh, Harold Geary, uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, he discovered uh, heavy water, you know, heavy hydrogen, deuterium. Uh, just a, an amazing character. He also did a lot of important great mustache. work. Great mustache. I don't know if he had a mustache. Did he? I haven't, I haven't Googled I don't him. Know. But, uh, but he, you know, he certainly could have had a mustache for sure. He, he was a Ron Swanson type character, it seems like, in terms of how epic his achievements were. And uh, yeah, so he was, at, he was at the Green Bank meeting where they hammered out the drink equation. And uh, some years later, he contributed to this uh, time capsule um, where he was asked to give his opinions of what the, the future of mankind and of space exploration would be 100 years hence. Uh, so that was in 1963. The capsule wasn't supposed to be opened until 2063. It ended up actually kind of being, um, it hasn't been opened yet, but it got disrupted. Uh, uh, long story short, there was a lot of construction where it got buried and it got moved to a museum. But uh, most of the other respondents, um, you know, we had like Lyndon Johnson talking about controlling the weather with satellites. We had uh, uh, Harold, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
uh, what, what, a couple of different architects of the, uh, the hydrogen bomb talking about how they thought intercontinental ballistic, ballistic missiles would be used to uh, transport people from place to place very quickly rather than, you know, rain nuclear fire from the skies. Wow. Uh, and they all had really small, uh, small things in the book, you know, like a page or two in this little volume that was included in the time capsule. Uh, but Harold Urey had uh, this response, this epic response that took up like a third of the book. And all he really talked about was how kind of how easy life had been um, in, his, in his lifetime, how he'd seen this shift from, you know, wood-fired stoves to nuclear energy, uh, from, you know, telegraphs to uh, telephones and communication satellites and uh, color television and things like that. And uh, he was talking about this immense uh, change, the, the, the pace of change that he had seen in his life and how it, it was not sustainable, about how something that grows exponentially especially when it's confined to just one planet, can't continue growing forever. Absolutely. And, and he used uh, energy use in particular and the production of electricity to, uh, to make his points. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I, I do think there's some truth to that. I, I, I like to think about the singularity and those ideas and that we're all going to upload our consciousness into silicon and live forever or whatever it is. I you mean, ever look at awesome. a dollar bill, man? Look at it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> dude, look at the back, man. Pyramid. Ah, get into it, Lee. It's crazy. <laughs> dude. <laughs> I mean, those things are important to think about and to reach for, but the whole point is like, you know, you can't just have this starry-eyed optimism without any kind of reality check. And the reality check is that, you know, if we keep producing, if we keep using more and more energy, uh, then at some point we're, we're going to kind of run out of good ways to do it. There's only so many ways you can get energy and suck energy out of the universe to use it in, in a useful form. So um, there's all kinds of different things you can kind of extrapolate from that. And uh, anyway, I, I'm a little skeptical about, about whether or not I'm going to live forever in, a, in, a, in an upload someplace. Oh, no, no, I, I, I am as well. I, I certainly still see a dystopian type uh, future. I was just thinking... Um, perhaps no i'm serious i just thought perhaps um as a byproduct of that we may find aliens i you know well, i mean if, if they have mustaches then it's all good <laughs> yeah. right i mean that, that's the key sure. how, how embarrassed do you reckon like all the, the eminent scientists who have, who have still survived from that initial meeting like if, if it turned out that amongst you know the nobel prize winning uh chemists and physicists and astronomers and and future great broadcasters and scientists uh, like one guy who's like maybe like one of the waiters or something like w- like just not really noticed but in the background of the pictures was an alien <laughs> that would be that would be ironic yeah yeah and they're like they just didn't we should have looked more closely at ralph <laughs> in the corner there. no one really asked him about his backstory yeah they just kind of let him <laughs> tag along they were all too busy being like no we're far more eminent you just pour the wine but actually yeah. They were here the whole time as an M. Night Shyamalan twist in the well, search for extraterrestrial well, life. Well, it, it does bring up an interesting point that when we find extraterrestrial life, um, despite our interest in finding an Earth-like, you know, twin planet, um, it probably will be, you know, bacteria. Um, it, I, I, or just something at, at some different stage along its progression as yes, life. Yes, that, that won't be right. as exciting at all. Um, and, you know, it'll be huge news and it'll, it'll answer a lot of questions and cause a lot of um, existential crisis for a lot of people. But, but I think, um, you know, I think that'll be a great thing. Um, that being said, are there, are there things being done to look for planets that perhaps formerly had life? I know that's been brought up a lot with Mars lately with the potential for the water in the past being, um, 
you know, more fertile or something like that. And again, I'm not telling anyone to look at dollar bills. I just have a very, I have a very crude understanding of, of this. I'm the, I'm the guy that dropped out of high school on the podcast. So I'm, I'm serious. I'm speaking to the, the layman here. Well, you know, speaking of, I, I just want to actually say now that you've identified yourself, I, uh, I love your, uh, your, opening, your opening song. The theme for Probably Science is so epic. It's like... Uh, oh, thank you. This, love it. Love it. It's Jesse great. composed so, that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Lee. Um, <laughs> um, what was the question again you were talking about? Oh, just yeah, yeah. Well, just well, uh, where life possibly existed before, a, post, right. a post-alien um, world. I don't, I don't know. Well, let, let's, I'm going to get... I want to let Bjorn get into this, this a little bit. Yes. Maybe I can say yeah, something to it. So basically, yeah, I mean, of course, on Mars, they're basically looking for for proof that, there has been, that for example, there was liquid water on Mars, that there has been life, or that there's something in the in the subsurface. I think for an exoplanet, because they're so much further away, and we can't just, right now at least, we can't send anything there that, that probes the subsurface or anything. I think what we need to detect something is a, is a strong biosphere on this planet. Um, so basically, to, to, to say that there is life, I think the only way we can actually do it from over here is that there's a significant signal in the atmosphere, that there's a gas that shouldn't be there just from chemistry that requires biology to be there. Sure. If there's something, if we found something like Mars as an exoplanet, where there's like a CO2 atmosphere around it that is very thin, I think it would be very difficult to go beyond and saying what what has been there in the past. Um, mm-hmm. Unless, of course, there's some kind of, I don't know, some kind of pollutant in the atmosphere or something like this. So the only thing we can actually probe is the atmospheric gas and maybe something something of the surface, maybe the, the signal. But it would be very hard to go somewhere and, and do something with that we're doing on Mars right now. We, so, we won't be able to send, to send a robot to an exoplanet. So um, if... if- if so something... it's definitely interesting for Mars, but I don't think it's too interesting. It's not too, it's not feasible right now because it's an exoplanet. So beyond, not if, in the foreseeable future. Right. If, if say like all something catastrophic happened on Earth and all human, animal, and plant plant life were to die, uh, and we were to point various telescopes at Earth in say a, a a thousand years from there, from that moment, what would we see that would be different to if life had never existed? I mean, you'd see a lot of stuff. And what you're talking about, there's actually a phrase for this in the field. It's called cryptic biospheres, cryptic biospheres. Mars may have a cryptic biosphere, right? I mean, in some, some cases, maybe Venus has a cryptic biosphere. Maybe there's something alive in the upper, the upper cloud banks of Venus, that, you know, little spores that kind of spread and reproduce in these super-rotating cyclonic winds uh, where, where, you know, the pressure isn't too high, uh, too high and the temperature isn't too, too high. Um, you can think about these kinds of exotic possibilities for things in the solar system, but I do agree with Bjorn. It's much, 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 much harder to... Uh, find a, con- a conceivable way of detecting these things, you know, from, from light years away. Uh, yeah. but, but your question, your question about um, what would, what would they see, you know, so we're, we're picturing some kind of apocalyptic wasteland, right? Well, um, I guess it kind of depends upon what poison you choose, how we go out. Uh, but, but you can say with some confidence that um, chances are, we're actually not going to be able to really kill everything on the planet. Um, right. You know, the, the, the common phrase that I like to borrow from environmentalists is, you know, when we're looking at the modern environmental crisis and what we're doing to the world, it's not save the earth, it's save the humans. Right, the earth's yes. going to be fine, yeah. and the biosphere is going to be fine, more or less. We can, we can nuke ourselves to oblivion, and 
the the bacteria which are pumping out a lot of the a, a good portion of the oxygen and most of the methane aren't going to they aren't going to give a, a crap. They aren't going to care. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. I so, somehow get the feeling the Kardashians will be fine, and I don't. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, yeah, I mean, they're actually obviously, as we all know from the well-known phrase, there was a cat on Mars, but curiosity killed it. Um, so that was our when it landed. That was our chance. Oh, right there. okay, that's okay. I didn't get. The See what I'm doing? Yeah, See what I'm doing? Oh, that's very good. Thank you. I so, quit. I quit comedy. I'm leaving. Like that. Like that. <laughs> I did think it was interesting in the book when you talked about there is a sort of a stabilizing effect that uh, we, with our planet has and that we think other planets in a similar habitable zone would have that keep us from staying in ice ages when we're in ice ages and sort of keep us oscillating between these. Um, I forgot exactly how it worked. It's the per- I remember the scientists explaining it said, it's very straightforward. And then there was a page long explanation. And I was yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I felt the exact same way when he was explaining that to me, and that's why I had to get him to repeat it, you know, in quote-unquote plain English um, in the book. So he he explains what happens, and then then I'm like, okay, just run it by me one more time, simpler and slower, and then he ran it by me again, and that's all in the book. Uh, That guy was named, uh, is named James Casting, Jim Casting. He's a professor out at uh, Penn State University and a really phenomenal scientist. Now, he's building on work that's been done by a lot of other uh, geochemists and, and, and planetary scientists, among them Harold Urey, who we've already talked about, um, as well as folks like uh, like Wally Broker. I, I'm just trying to kind of get some bona fides out there and throw some names out because yeah. I think uh, some some people have this sense that you know I, I'm I'm putting Jim Casting on a pedestal, and I, I kind of am because I do think he's quite special. But he would be the first to say that um, that a lot of his work, you know, he's standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, but anyway, yeah, but he has those deep blue eyes. Deep, deep <laughs> blue eyes. Him. You can you can look you can get lost in them forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm looking for life in there. I mean, just oh, a universe, and you just feel his soul. He, he's an interesting character, and, and basically, uh, what what he did, or, or the the what he elucidated, this cycle you're talking about, this kind of a thermostat, as we might call it, is uh, it has to do with plate tectonics, the way that um, that you know there's continental drift, and these plates drift around on the planet's surface, and it recycles nutrients on geological timescales. You know plates kind of subduct down into the mantle and they end up getting uh, processed by all that heat and pressure and they kind of bubble back up. They're, they're, um, you know, so there's a, there's kind of a conveyor belt that's keeping, uh, keeping things fresh, freshening things up, recycling nutrients on the planet. Um, and uh, that's really important, obviously, for long-term habitability and climate. Uh, and I'll simplify it a bunch, but, uh, you know, it just has to do with, uh, uh, oh God, how, what is the best way to simplify it? Oh man! All of a sudden, I've I've talked myself into a corner. But but long story short, um, just when when things get really when you get deep into an ice age, then suddenly things are released into the atmosphere that tend to slightly warm things up. Or, or, or I forgot. That's right. That's right. Well, so so as long as uh, you know you can have a huge ice age, the whole world could freeze over essentially, and you can recover from that because uh, the, the Earth's interior is still quite hot and, and volcanoes are still venting out all these gases, uh, in particular CO2, a really potent greenhouse gas that everyone knows about. Um, and, and over time, that will essentially fill the, Earth, the Earth's atmosphere with enough greenhouse gas, enough CO2, that it will raise the greenhouse effect, it will raise the temperature, and the ice melts, and then you're back in a nice, pleasant, clement climate. Yeah. Uh, now, conversely, of course, you have the other end where a planet heats up. And unfortunately, the mechanism doesn't really work as well in that case. Uh, It it does work to some degree because uh, if a planet heats up a little bit, um, more water vapor and stuff, an Earth-like planet, more more water vapor and stuff will go into the atmosphere. Water vapor um, is a greenhouse gas, but uh, water vapor also um, 
encourages other uh, other processes to happen, like uh, like the weathering of rocks, which which takes CO2 out. It's really complicated. The Earth is just a big machine in this viewpoint. Uh, but the point is, is that while you can never really get too cold, uh, you can always seem to recover from this. If you get too hot, of course, you can go into kind of a runaway greenhouse state, which we see on Venus right now. Um, and uh, so the message there is really that, you know, we, we probably should be pretty careful with um, with all the all the things we're doing right now to the planet, even though it doesn't look like we could really take it to a full on runaway and become Venus. Um, that that in the future will probably be what does the Earth in in the very far long term future. So you're saying we shouldn't have left our cars on during this podcast. Oh, if you're idling your car, you're, you're totally responsible for the death of the planet. Uh, you probably just killed some really cute penguin someplace for sure. We, OK, we always do the podcast from within our idling car uh, we have a, we have a hummer that we've turned into a studio and uh we to power the microphones we have to keep it on yeah, we should really look into that we could just yeah. plug it into the walls now that i think about it in the house but, i guess there yeah, is an outlet yeah. it's weird that we converted the car to take that outlet yeah huh. well, speaking of energy by the way you also talked about if if uh humankind's consumption of energy keeps increasing at the rate that it is within was it 2400 years we'll have to be capturing every ounce of energy that's coming out of the sun just to meet our power needs like we'll have to encircle the sun in uh that's some terrifying kind of the, a dyson sphere is that what you called it that's, that's right uh, yeah so so long story short here um there's a guy named freeman dyson a brilliant um physicist who has has made all kinds of seminal contributions across across this field um, but, but one thing that he's uh, known for is this? Uh, he, he basically looked at, at the increase in energy use and and, and was extrapolating out just as um, as we kind of have done right now. Uh, and he said, well, yeah, you know, if you extrapolate out naively and just assume that it keeps going at this set pace and increasing um, at a set percentage each year or whatever time period you're using, then at some point in the future, you do end up with a situation where you your energy use is outpacing uh, the amount of sunlight that shines on the surface of the planet. So you have to find other ways to get energy if you're going to continue that. So he thought that really energy-hungry, very sophisticated civilizations would um, maybe disassemble a planet or two, uh, something like Jupiter, um, and use all that material to create a bunch of uh, solar collectors <laughs> in a big cloud around their solar system. And then you could actually see that. That would actually be a, a, a SETI signal, you know? When we talk about looking for radio waves or laser beams or spaceships from, from alien civilizations, another possibility is that somewhere out there, there's some really energy-hungry, uh, you know, hungry, hungry hippos around some star, and they mm -hmm. basically uh, built one of these Dyson spheres to capture all the energy of their star. And you can actually see that. There's kind of a, um, a signature to it, because you'd see the star fade invisible, and then it would start glowing in infrared. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of stars that uh, glow in infrared right now just because they're surrounded by what looks like dust. So, uh, um, yeah. Or is it dust? Or is it or exactly? Is it a giant solar collector. But that's, I mean, that's a, uh, it's clearly so, so far ahead of our technology, but that, that's effectively using an entire star, like the, the, the sun itself, as a boiler. Essentially, yes, yes. And, and, and you know, I think where it's really useful maybe isn't in so much um, thinking that that's going to be our future, but rather quite the opposite saying, you know, au contraire, um, we, we look out there, we look out to the nearby stars and, and uh, places in our galaxy and even other galaxies. And we don't really see a lot of evidence of anything like that going on. Um, and, and, and I think that suggests, well, it suggests that, you know, we're probably somewhat more rare than I think people in the past wanted to believe. 
and also that, uh, that you know, this, this period, this kind of strange uh, dream time that we're in where energy is just, you know, super duper uh, prolific and, and, and abundant and, and, and cheap um, probably isn't going to last forever. Um, it, it probably does have an end point. And whether that's when we, you know, run out of fossil fuels to burn or, or whatever it is, I'm not sure. But you can't just keep increasing and growing exponentially. So, yeah. Now, how is five-hour energy involved? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. That's a good one. Impotence. That's a good one. I don't know. Well, yeah, I think it, it contributes significantly to this exponential growth, right? Because if you didn't have that, we couldn't work as much, and then it would slow down our, our growth here. We wouldn't so, be finding as many exoplanets yeah. without five-hour energy. That's a good point. Yeah. That, that extra hour of energy above and beyond might be the difference between us finding somewhere that we can have it in space. Finding a different finding a different planet, finding alien civilization. Well, no, I think Whatever he was saying, or I, I, I don't think I think he ignored the fiber energy. I think he was talking about the actual. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were still riffing on fiber <laughs> no, energy. No, no, I'm sorry. The actual, uh, the uh, you know, actually, of course, the more energy we consume, the more we're putting out. Right. You know, right. the overpopulation, no, things like that. Um, yeah, I was still talking about the five energy, though. Nice. Okay, <laughs> good, good. Okay. Oh, <laughs> man. Uh, your, your, your accent lends you so much credibility that Jesse refused to believe No, it, it does. I'm very, scared of, uh, I'm, I'm very scared of foreign scientific uh, talk. <laughs> I, I, get, I, I feel so insecure, yeah, Bjorn. How, how, does it, how does it feel, Bjorn, right. having, the, having the accent that people assume all scientists have? <laughs> I feel like there are quite a few out there. Like, and the thing is, what you learn when you're in this field right away, after a couple of years, somebody, some French person says the, the first word, just just the way he says hi, and you know it's a French person. Then some Spanish person comes and says hello, and you know he's Spanish, and so on. So basically, I think what is really interesting about this field is it's so international that you have to kind of connect with so many different international people from anywhere, from Asia, from, from Europe, from uh, from over here, that you kind of get to know the cultures rather quickly and and kind of and you sometimes figure out that that some of these um cliches that you might have about some of the cultures are actually true and it's just it's actually funny <laughs> well, well that wasn't where i saw it going i didn't see it well, no of course of course it's true um have, have you noticed any amongst the various different cultures just any suspiciously quiet one called ralph <laughs> with with a mustache and a bottle of wine, <laughs> pale green skin. Yeah, a bottle of wine alien. that oxidates him. Uh, <laughs> wow. So Bjorn, have you had any um, in the, in the exoplanet section of the book? There's a lot of talk about in the last 15 years or however long this exoplanet boom's been going on. Um, whenever uh, people analyze data, there's fighting over who gets credit because the data sometimes is already out there, but it's it's up to somebody to go look through it and find these patterns that would indicate a wobble that means maybe a planet and then like friendships have been torn apart over people claiming first discoveries of things or publishing first. Have you experienced any of that stuff firsthand? So sometimes of course there's some, if you want competition in the field. Um, I, I mean, in general, I think we are all kind of nice to each other and we are all like, friends. And I think we also work together a lot and I've, I've collaborated in Europe, but also in, in Boston, I still work with the MIT people. I work with the people in Chicago, and I work with the people here. And it's, of course, there's always sometimes it's for several people around the world maybe obvious what the next step can be and what the next big progress could be. And and so people around the world, and somebody in Japan, somebody in the US, 
they come up with the same idea of doing observations. So basically, let's say somebody finds a planet, a super Earth planet, GJ Prophet MB was one of the famous ones. It's basically, if you basically announce today that this planet is there, then of course a lot of people around the world will chase and look at this planet to try to find out what this planet is made of or how this planet formed or what is going on on this planet or whether it could be could have life. So sometimes there is this competition between different groups. But I think in general we are all nice to each other. Um, it's not like that we are fighting or anything. But of course everybody is trying to to be the first one, or every group at least tries to be the first the first group. Because that's one thing about science is that basically um, the first person that finds out something he's going to be famous, um, right? And the second person, if he's one week late, will basically yeah. We're not yeah. famous. Yeah. Um, and, and this is this is in particular true when there is limited resources. I mean, basically, let's say in the in the fifties or whatever, um, there were just there was a different ratio between um, PhD graduates and number of professors. So basically, um, it, it was much easier to find a good job in academia somewhere in the fifties. Um, now there's a strong competition, and 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 you have to be one of the best. To even basically be be able to stay in the field, and if, if your all your passion is in the field, then of course you're trying as hard as possible to to stay in the field and and and, and get a professorship somewhere. I think there was also yesterday or so there was in the news that basically um, Professor Higgs, the person who who found um, or basically who predicted the Higgs um, particle, um, he basically said that in the current competitive environment. He would have never had made it because he didn't publish enough papers. Wow. So it, it has it has it has changed, right? Sometimes um, some people maybe back in the fifties they could basically just um, had maybe one great idea that they were pursuing for tens of years without necessarily publishing much, and then the end basically bringing out this big result or maybe this big finding. I think today in this world you kind of have to be productive at all times. Well, the only vaguely um, recent example I can think of with that was, and, it, and even that was in the 90s, was Andrew Wiles was left alone for uh, the seven or eight years it took him to prove Fermat's last theorem mm-hmm. and published almost nothing. But I, I guess he'd done enough at the early part of his career and he was just known as such a a genius that they're like, okay, he's probably doing something. We're going <laughs> to... We'll give him the benefit of the doubt for a few years. So is yeah, this... Once a- you get- once you get tenure, it's kind of a different ball game, of course. Um, but I, I, I just want to say that what Bjorn raised uh, in the latter, well, in all of it, but, but in particular in the latter half of his answer is, is just spot on. I mean, the, the issue of limited resources is huge. And that's kind of a, obviously an overarching theme here. We're, yeah. we're isolated on one planet uh, <laughs> that has all kinds of ramifications. But just in the field, you know, I mean, there's really, it's not like um, there's uh, a huge, ridiculous, uh, disproportionate amount of money flowing into this. It, it, you know, there's a lot of people flowing into it because they're interested in it. Um, there's a lot of, you know, up, young up and coming scientists who want to make the next big thing happen in exoplanets. But in terms of funding, um, yeah, it, it's a very small pot. It's, and there's a lot of fish in, in this uh, in this pond and the pond isn't growing, but all the fish keep streaming in. And, and so it becomes a zero sum game where if you're going to get ahead, you have to take from someone else. And that's, that's obviously, you know, that seems to be a fact of life uh, to some degree. But, um, you know, I, I think things could be improved a lot if, um, I guess, if there was a little more attention paid and uh, a little more, uh, 
a little more money, a little more money flowing into the field. Yeah, you, t- you talked yeah. about how, how many things have, have been shut down, like radio telescopes that have to have private funding now to keep operating and, and governments cutting back. I mean, because we're always trying to encourage young people to go into STEM. When they, when they, fields, replaced, but... they replaced the Hubble with a Denny's, <laughs> which I thought, like, how do they even fly that up there? I mean, how, you know, that's ridiculous. Well, you can work out how they got the building up there, but the staff, how do they get on a daily basis, get out and then back the again? And yeah, I know, I know. Eggs and well, that's really, just it's a ridiculous. waste. It's just yeah. a waste. waste. It doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, uh, what is the, in, what's in the end, what I think what our society has to decide on, let's say America has to decide, is basically how important is this answering this question of finding life out there. So it's basically, it's, I think it's a very fundamental question. And, and right now we're spending like a tiny amount of, of the national budget on this. Well, so basically, I made this, I made this joke on Facebook the other day. It's basically when we had this government shutdown, we're basically for a couple of weeks or a few weeks, basically, yeah, the economy was down, and the estimated loss of of this, or basically the estimated costs of this shutdown, were twenty four billion dollars. Yeah, this is, this is one and a half times the funding for entire for for the entire NASA technology and science for an entire year. Jeez. This is one and a half years of NASA funding that were just basically being wasted um, at that at that moment. Um, wow. And this is not even. I mean, you could basically build space telescopes that work that would be capable of finding a second Earth, directly image it with that money. So, just really? Wait, so, so how much money, what's, what's the minimum amount of money you think you could, like if, if you went to the government and went like, this is the amount of money that we, sh- that if you gave us, we would produce something remarkable. <laughs> so, I mean, basically what, what, it's kind of, I mean, nobody has, I mean, people have basically studied what, what could be done. And I think the number is basically in the single digit billion what you would need to build, what NASA would need, or America would need, to, to put a telescope that directly image, images um, an Earth-sized planet around a sun-like star. Um, and this is somewhere, I mean, this is basically, the technology is there. I didn't realize it was that little money. I thought you'd have to build something that was uh, thousands or millions of miles wide out in space to actually have an image of an exoplanet. Nope. Okay, no. so this, is, this is a different question. To get an image of an exoplanet where you can actually see continents and cloud patches, that's one thing. But basically to get the Earth, or basically an Earth-sized planet, separate from the star, where you can actually see the, it's a pale blue dot, the famous pale blue dot that Carl Sagan also talked about, other people talked about. If basically you do that, you're basically in the single in a single digit billions, five to ten billion. So Bill Gates or Paul Allen could just step up and write a check right now and make that happen. Well, I mean, just to just to um, I, I want to expand on that. So yeah, I, I think that Bjorn's estimate is right. You know, the five to ten billion range. Um, uh, that that's you know, if we're talking on the lower end of that scale, that's on the order of you know what we're kind of spending in the Middle East, right? I mean, every right. week sure. or two. So sure. it's it's not a lot of money in the big picture. Now, I'm not trying to be cavalier and say that we don't need to. Um, we don't need to prioritize and be careful with our spending, but you know it does seem like something that's pretty noble and important, and that a lot of people would get behind if they knew it was possible. And the kind um, of thing that drives other, like when people talk about, well, NASA spending all this money putting, trying to put man on the moon, like the, the, the number of scientific discoveries, the number of people who are inspired to take up science and engineering throughout the whole of the Apollo program and throughout the whole of these other like fantastic scientific massive projects, the spin-offs right. of that are huge. 
Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of spin-offs you could think about. Uh, um, uh, I mean, there's applications in uh, defense and uh, Earth observation. Uh, and those pens that write upside down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, what you also have to see is, is basically, let's say you spend $5 billion on a space telescope. It's not that this $5 million is basically thrown in some kind of hole. It's basically, if you, let's say, gave some NASA... Um, if you get JPL here, for example, a few billion dollars for something, this money is, is being spent by JPL. So basically there will be scientists, there will be engineers, that basically this is their paycheck, and they bring it back to, to, um, to, to, to the economy. This right, money is not right. just being wasted. It's not like throwing $5 billion away. It's kind of, it's recycled. You're basically just reassigning money somewhere, and then it's, it's coming back into, into our economy anyway. No, um, but let's let's so be think, real for a minute. Let's be real for a minute, and let's let's admit. Let's just say that you know what? It's not about spinoffs. It's not about spinoffs. Like spinoffs are great, but if you want to do spinoffs, just fund fund that stuff in the first place. You want to make a better battery, fund the better battery. Don't don't go you know trying to land people on the moon. The reason why we do this is because it gives us a sense of who we are and what we mean in the universe. That's what this is about. And, 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 and you know, if you think about it. One thing that really appeals to me a lot, and, and, and one thing that I've explored some in the book, is, is this notion that, you know, hey, we can look out there. We could spend the 5 or $10 billion to build one of these planet-finding, life-finding space telescopes, and we could survey the nearest several hundred stars or, or, you know, a couple thousand stars. And we could find nothing at all. We could find nothing that looks like us. We could find no signs of oxygen or methane on any planet that, that was in the habitable zone. And, and, and the point is that we don't know what's out there, but we're on the cusp of finding out. But think about it for a minute. In some ways for me, I think that what's more profound is not the notion that we'd look out there and we'd find all these little pale blue dots that look just like Earth. What's more profound and, and, and in some degree scary, but also humbling and, 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 uh, and important to realize is that it could be that you know, we'll look out and we won't find anything and, and that for all practical purposes, we're alone. And that every no, man, thing- I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Dollar bills, man. <laughs> but but that would be that would be an equally profound realization for us. Well, oh, I'm sorry, I, I I'm sorry, it, Lee. I think in some degree it might actually be more profound because in that sense, I mean, if, if if there's if there's an Earth around every star, and there's people having Skype conversations and talking about you know around Alpha Centauri right now, there's some green-skinned guys talking about whether or not there's anything going on over in the Sol system 4.6 light years away. Well, in that case, it seems like we're not really that special. And, you know, it, in the big scheme of things, we don't really matter. But that, you know, and, and that's part of kind of what people have been talking about for several centuries now, the, the whole idea of the, you know, the Copernican revolution, that the, the sun does not orbit around the earth, that the earth is not the center of the universe, that, that we are not special, that we are mediocre and average and common. That could be totally wrong. That could be totally wrong in terms of the, uh, you know, the, what's going on in our galaxy right now. It could be that in the whole Milky Way galaxy, in, in the whole Virgo supercluster, in the whole expanse of sky that you can see with space telescopes out to the very edge of infinity, that we could be the only spark of light and life and hope that exists in this vast emptiness. And we've, and we've created reality TV. <laughs> That's what we've well, used. It, and it, it, seems, it seems to me... That, uh, you know, when we're talking funding and we're talking about this search, um, I suppose it, it's, it strikes me as very um, ironic and odd that, and this is more sociological, but it strikes me that, as odd that um, the more, I, I suppose these things go hand in hand, but the more our planet needs help, the more we need these answers, 
the more narcissistic we're getting. It's it seems that we just want to get through this life at just our our time, our individual times on Earth, because you know chances are the the climate's not going up that fast. We're all gonna if despite a unless there's a nuclear holocaust we bring on ourselves in the next few generations, it seems like we're all gonna be old people. So I I think that. Um, we're we're significantly ignoring the inevitable and and it seems to me that at some point as i understand it we would have to start planet hopping anyway so we need to find sustainable sustainability somewhere i kind of have my doubts of whether that's ever going to be a, an actual well, no, solution me, to me, anything but me yeah. too but but i mean it it seems that like this is something that we we have to do i i don't know why this isn't being funded like defense it is defensive Sort it's of, such a long time scale. Yeah, the time scale is crazy long. It's right. Yeah, I mean, but but you know, this this does yeah, it feeds into the kind of that question because I mean, honestly, again, if there's if there's Earths all over the place and there's people all over the place and there's there's minds out there that can think and feel and love and and that can do all these wonderful things that we do here on Earth, then you know, it really doesn't matter if we go away. It doesn't matter. Because, right. because the, the principle of plenitude is out there and there's just so many other things that, that, you know, that's happening everywhere else. But if we look out and instead we, you know, we don't see any of that and, and it does seem like somehow we are in some sense special. Now, maybe that's, you know, we're just blinkered and we're not looking in the right way, but I, I think that's such a powerful message. That's the kind of thing that maybe could stimulate that sort of attention, that sort of spending, that sort of caring about our long-term future when it's like, holy shit, you know, nothing else out here looks alive so yeah. maybe we do have a responsibility well i will have to counter you and say that if we're not alone it still matters greatly because i don't know if you guys have seen total recall three boobs <laughs> three boobs where are they how do we find them i did, um, I, I must say I, I did very much enjoy lee's book but uh lee you did that was a glaring omission the lack of three the boobs lack of three, in space. why isn't this being brought to congress for funding guys three boobs, we three boobs. we're gonna find them <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about how uh, other forms that, that aliens could take, right? Um, and, and, of course, uh, now, just to get full-on nerd on you, of course, you know, the, the, the woman with three boobs in Total Recall wasn't an alien. She was a genetically engineered human. She was a mutant. Oh! oh. Look who's been watching his Paul Verhoeven movies. <laughs> at, some point, at some point, when we think about the future of, our, of ourselves, or when we look out there and we're looking for aliens and we're looking for... Um, the you know Captain Kirk and the Enterprise or Luke Skywalker and the Death Star. When we're looking out there for these things, what we're really looking for is our own future. Yes, and that's particularly apt right now, while the rate of change is so fast, while our society is changing so dramatically and growing so dramatically in so many different ways and so many different fronts. Uh, if you extrapolate that, not just talking about energy or the singularity now, but if you just extrapolate that out a couple of centuries. You know, our descendants are going to be basically alien to us. We're, we're going to look at what their lives are like if, the, if this thing keeps going and progressing as it does. And we're going to be like, you know, what? And we're going to be like cavemen. So, well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, and I'll ask this to both of you guys. Um, what, uh, what sort of things would you have to see? Let's say you, you can have the telescope where you can, you can see r- right inside their houses if you find these people. What sort of things would have to be happening for you to just keep that information to yourself? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how awful would it have to be for you to be like, you know what? It's probably best the scientific community. Just like they're cutting their toenails at the dinner table. Right. It's, like, what yeah. do they look like? What does our future look like for you to be like, Jesus, let's just leave this alone. 
<laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, I guess I'll go ahead and go first real quick, uh, and I'll just say that um, I, 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 sometimes I, I, I walk the streets and I, I, I look at my life and I look at the, the society that's around me, and, and um, I try to kind of see it almost like an alien. I, I know it's a little ridiculous and, no. and silly, but, you know, you try to think about that outside perspective, and I have to say that um, what I see on the earth is a, a fallen world. I, th- I think that, that if people are looking at us from out there, they're probably shaking their heads and thinking maybe we should not try to contact them. Maybe we should keep this to ourselves and not talk about it because it's so depressing and terrible. Um, and, and that's just because I think, you know, there's almost an infinite capacity for, uh, for evil and, and, and violence and bad things that, that, that's within us. But at the same time, of course, there's almost an infinite capacity for, for love and kindness and compassion. And we're unique in the biosphere in having that, uh, as far as we know, out of the entire history of it. Um, Party starter Lee Billings. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, well, the point is, it's just that, you know, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, and you can look at our own planet and see some things we do that don't make a lot of sense, whether that's, um, you know, burning fossil fuels and venting them into the sky instead of, uh, you know, using them for chemical synthesis and making all kinds of better drugs and fertilizers and, uh, and plastics and things like that, or whether it's something like... Um, uh, eating other sentient creatures, you know, I mean, uh, the way that, I mean, the, you know, factory farming and things like that. I mean, the, to an alien, they're probably going to look at that and they're going to think there's some kind of Holocaust going on in our planet, <laughs> uh, you know? And, and so uh, these kinds of questions I think are really important. This, this outsider perspective is really important to think about. Yeah. And I, 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 anytime I think about what we could see on another planet um, that would be so bad that we wouldn't want to talk about it and we wouldn't want to face it, um, I basically just end up looking at a reflection of what's right here on Earth. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, man. Guys, we have got to stop eating steak dinners and doing this in the Hummer. <laughs> it's such a weird way to record this podcast. and it, it, it's, even, it's unprofessional for us to talk with all the steak in our I mouths. And, uh, I just heard that's how Rush does his show. Yep. And if his show's going into space... <laughs> Why shouldn't ours be? Um, well, Lee, Lee and Bjorn, thank you so much for joining us. The book was great. Again, it's called Five Billion Years of Solitude. We highly recommend our readers check it out. It's as, as, uh, as evidenced by your, your sort of philosophical take on things. It's not just science. It's also about the people involved and, and the philosophical implications of all this work. Um, um, it's it's really dense with information. It's a great book. And uh, and our listeners can also find you. Uh, I think Lee, you're at Lee Billings on Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's at Lee Billings on Twitter. I hope I hope you all follow me. I'm following popular or, or probably science. And uh, I'm going to follow you right back. now. Yep, do it. Uh, and um, and, and the book's available on Amazon right now as an ebook as well. Yep. Oh, yeah, um, you can click on the link through through the probablyscience.com uh, link and. Uh, and it costs you no extra money, but it gives us a, a little uh, sponsorship uh, cash. Um, Absolutely, Bjorn. How how do how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, so I have of course a web page, um, which is yeah and then um, slash b Benicky with my first name, my basic initial, and then Benicky my last name. Um, or just basically, what you can do is just take Google, type in Benicky. And Edward Friedel, maybe atmosphere, exoplanets, whatever. You will find quite a few uh, links over there. Great. Well, we'll nice. we we will link to that from our website as well, so our listeners can find you. Uh, but again, um, all right, okay. Bjorn, thank you so much for sharing sharing your expertise, and Lee, thank you very much for joining us and for writing this book. It's been super duper. I'm so glad y'all read it, and uh, it's you know I, I kind of feel like I'm I'm really I really should be lurking in the shadows of Bjorn here. You know, he's the person who's really going out and doing the work and making the future happen. And I'm just kind of a, an ink-stained wretch who just kind of trails along and, and scribbles in a <laughs> well, notebook. I, right? I don't even want to know what that makes yeah, us. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right? 
Well, of course we look up to Bjorn. The guy was in Die Hard. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, of course. But, but I think in the end, I think what matters is both, right? There, there must be some people that, that do the science, and then there must be some people that, that bring this out to the public. And in the end, we're doing this stuff for the public as a service, if you want to see like this. Of course, our own interest in there, but in the end, we want to have it out. And I think books like this, um, they are important because they bring out what we're doing here in scientific papers that, of course, most people don't want to read. They bring it out to the public. So I think this is equally important. Uh, I agree. And what I think we should do to conclude this is we should all virtually high five. If you would just, on the count of three, just like one, one two, two, three. three. Well, bam. Oh, I missed I missed a bit. Yeah. I, was, I, was, uh, I yeah. just caught it with my finger. That, oh, was, that counts. Accounts. Accounts. Counts. We did uh, it, guys. <laughs> good work, everybody. Liam Vion, thank it. you so much for joining us, guys. Yes, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Take My care, pleasure. Thank you. I think that went pretty well, guys. Yeah. That one, uh, as long as it sounds okay, we haven't, we haven't listened back yet to see... As long as the Skype the sound Skype. quality is good enough. But uh, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. That was two weeks in a row of some real science. Um, and next week, we'll go back to probably a little bit more dick and fart jokes. Uh, sure. Well, the next week's going to be three of us separately. Because Matt and I are on the road. Oh, that's true. Okay. So it's going to be, be in London. Jesse's going to be back in uh, Nashville. Nashville. And are you staying here for Christmas? I am staying here. My aunt and uncle are coming out to visit my cousin who lives out here. So oh, cool. Well, we definitely want to say Merry Christmas, everyone, because that's happening between uh, yeah. this episode and the next. I will uh, go out of my way to say Happy Holidays because I'm a, I'm a, a, a well, but nice Hanukkah, person. But Hanukkah's over. But other, whatever other holidays you might celebrate or create. Or, okay, uh, well, I didn't realize tides. I lived with someone that recognized Islam. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yes, obviously, happy holidays, everyone. Um, and we, we have a couple of people to thank. I think there's been a... I hope we don't miss out. Again, I, I said this on an episode a couple of weeks ago. If if you've donated money through uh, the PayPal uh, link on probablyscience.com and we haven't mentioned you, don't feel like you're a dick if you email us and go, hey, guys, what the fuck? Uh, because we have just lost that email and I feel bad if we've, lo- if we've missed you out and we've not thanked you for it. We hugely appreciate anyone who... Uh, cares enough about the show to chuck in some money um yeah that's, care about that's, anyone on us. that's our administrative really. stuff yeah uh, so let us know got some thank yous uh espen hansen amdahl from norway wrote in uh after the daniel sloss episode and he added a little piece of trivia which is that daniel sloss's last name means to have fought in norwegian so wow that's, that's that and that might well i th- i thought that might be just you know sounds like it but actually that's probably where his name came from like he he's from Scotland, there's a lot of Scandinavian invasion to that part of the British Isles. It makes sense to me. He may well have been. He may well be descended from Norwegian ex-fighters. Yeah. And from Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale Florida, uh, Adam Bozian, 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 Adam Bozian, uh, Adam, Adam, Adam uh, Shyamalan. Yes, Adam. Thank you very much for Thanks, doing that. Thanks, man. Uh, and then a few from back in November we might have missed, and if we not, if we didn't, you're getting a double thanks. You're getting a double thanks, Matthew Arnold and Gary Smith. Thank you very much for your donations. We do appreciate it. Again, you can donate at probablyscience.com. Um, you can also find an Amazon link there if you want to buy five billion years of solitude. Click on that link first, and then purchase away. With or no if extra you're buying cost. anything through Amazon anything for maybe you're doing your Christmas shopping, uh, click on that link, and it just kicks back a little uh, commission to us for no extra effort on your part. Uh, questions, comments, clarifications, and that's probably science at gmail.com or tweet us at probably science. Uh, and yeah, five billion years of solitude. Obviously, you can still time to pick that up for whatever holiday you have. Right. Um, you still have three days left, so you can uh, you can pick that up. An excellent gift, very subtle subtext to give to your ex girlfriend. <laughs> um, There's more to the universe than you, Clarice. 
Why would um, Clarice be my go-to? Why, it's, it's totally it's, dude, my go-to is hilarious. always like, what? my go-to is always Stephanie, and I don't even think I okay. know a Stephanie. I don't know a Clarice. <laughs> Um, you can also click. You can also rate us on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes if you or through whichever podcast listening medium. If you happen to have just listened to this episode and you fancy listening to more, that is the procedure by which you can do that. I don't know why I'm explaining that to you. You probably know. <laughs> you know how podcasts work. Thank you guys for listening. Enjoy Bye. the holidays. Have a good New Year, and we'll see you next we'll week. We'll see you next week.